0: My kids love to climb up on our shed roof, uh, so don't don't call child services on us. Okay, everybody relax. Our shed roof is only about thirty feet high, so so no worries. No, it's actually about seven or eight feet high. Okay, so it's not that threatening. And and anyway, the other day Andrew um, was up on the shed roof and he wanted to get down, and so I went to him and I reached my hands up to my son. And uh, he, it's kind of intimidating because he needed to face first, kind of fall forward off of the shed roof into, into my arms, and that's intimidating for a little guy. And so I reassured my son, and I said something to the effect of, do you think I would let you fall? I don't want you, want you to fall. And Andrew, he fell forward securely into my arms, and I embraced him, and I put him down, and he ran off, and, and it was like a light turned on for me. My heavenly father loves me so much, and I can actually trust him. He doesn't want me to fall and get hurt, and he's not going to let me. And from that little father moment with my son, my heavenly father's heart towards me became uh, clearer. God's heart is loving and kind toward his children. He protects them. And as we lean forward in trust, he never steps aside to watch us fall to the ground. He's not like that. Neither is his law meant to harm us or to make life miserable from us. In fact, quite the opposite. And honestly, and this is, this is a confession, in my weakness, I sometimes feel as if God's going to step to the side. And I'm just going to smash my face in. Furthermore, I don't always sense the goodness of God's law. Sometimes it feels like God's actually withholding something from me. And I feel this way because I don't know or trust God as I ought, as I should. And and as my circumstances change, who God is, who I am in relation to God, and how God relates to me never change. He only ever works for my good and commands what is good. And when I doubt that, I don't feel safe or loved, even when I am actually safe and loved. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that nothing bad ever happens to God's children, but it does mean that nothing bad ever works for their ultimate harm. Everything works for their good. Our Father uses our bruises for our good. He never steps aside. His hands, metaphorically speaking, are always on us even as we are falling and getting banged up and even if, if we are to feel or if we are to feel secure in him, I mean really feel secure in him, we have to know and trust him. It's important that you know that the law not only tells you what to do, it tells you what God is like. Dr. Kevin DeYoung said, Quote, the law is an expression of the lawgiver's heart and character. The commandments not only show us what God wants, they show us what God is like. They say something about his honor, his worth, and his majesty. They tell us what matters to God. We can't disdain the law without disrespecting the lawgiver. End quote. And why is that? Because God is the origin of the law. All that the law commands, which can be summarized by the word love, is all that God is, for scripture says God is love. As well as being our roadmap of righteousness, the law is an extraordinary statement about the character and nature of God. So how you think about the Ten Commandments reveals in significant ways how you think about God. How you think about his heart? How do you think about God? Let's review a bit. Remember this. The Exodus event typifies our salvation from our sin and misery. Dr. T. Desmond Alexander commented, quote, the Exodus story prefigures the coming of Jesus Christ to redeem, ransom, and cleanse and sanctify people from every nation who under a new and better covenant will ultimately dwell in God's holy presence on a renewed earth. That's what the Exodus is about. One noteworthy point from Exodus 1 through 20 is God gave Israel law after he delivered them from bondage. He didn't give Israel the law in Egypt and then make their deliverance dependent upon their obedience. And that's very important to understand. God didn't even look into the future to see if Israel would be faithful and then choose to deliver them. He delivered them because he is sovereign and gracious, and he always keeps his promises. Friends, if you can't distinguish law from gospel, if you don't understand guilt, grace, gratitude, it's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt you. You're likely to perceive God as a a domineering and fault-finding father. You're likely to hear his law and think that he's always wagging his finger, his disapproving finger, in your face, demanding what you can't do, as if he takes some sadistic pleasure in your your frustration and failure. And that's going to impact your trust in and intimacy with God. It'll taint how you hear God's law, it'll make obedience seem like some big burden. But if you can distinguish law from gospel, if you understand guilt, grace, gratitude, it will sweeten the law for you. The the gospel received makes the law taste sweet. Viewed through the gospel, the law teaches us how to have a good relationship with God, how to have a good relationship with others. Indeed, how to love. We turn first to the pattern. Grace before gratitude. The pattern, grace before gratitude. The Ten Commandments are stated, as I said earlier, in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5, and there's a structure to them. The structure of the Ten is important, and my thinking here is greatly influenced by Reformed catechisms and Zacharias or Sinus because they speak so biblically about these things. Here's the structure. First, there's a preface or an introductory statement Second, there's a first table or a first grouping of commandments. And third, there's a second table and a second grouping of commandments. So three sections, the preface, the first table, the second table. That's the organization. So number one, the preface. Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2 say, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Zacharias Yersinus said, quote, this preface belongs to the whole Decalogue, end quote. Decalogue is is another name for the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. Deca meaning ten, log meaning spoken word, ten spoken words. And Yersinus said the Decalogue describes and distinguishes God, the lawgiver, from all creatures, human legislators, and false deities, And contains three reasons why the obedience of the first and following commandments should be performed to God. In the preface, God declared to Israel his identity as their covenant-keeping, covenant-making God. This informed them of who was giving them the Ten Commandments. God's identity and redemptive work helped Israel receive the law the right way as a gracious endowment from their covenant God. So first you have the gospel in the preface and then come the 10 which are divided into two tables, into two sections. Exodus 31 and 32 tell us that God gave Moses how many tablets, how many stone tablets? Two stone tablets. On both sides of both tablets, God himself wrote the moral law. Exodus 32, 16 says, the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. Friends, the Ten Commandments, including the preface, are the supernatural work of God, writing of God. Words of God. The ten reflect God's character and nature. So in order to understand and apply the ten as they are meant to be understood and applied, one must know and submit to the God who gave them. For they are God's way to love. And this is where our culture, folks, is so, so confused about love. They define love according to what they think love should be. And since they don't know or believe the gospel, nor do they cherish the ten, especially the first four, they don't know how to love, and it shows. Our culture is not loving. Our society is not loving, even though it tries to champion that word, which they redefine. Heidelberg 93 asks, How are these commandments divided? And it answers very simply into two parts. The first teaches us how to live in relation to God. The second, what duties we owe our neighbor. The Westminster Larger Catechism 98 states in similar fashion, the first four commandments containing our duty to God and the other six, our duty to man. Number two, the first table. The the first four commandments tell us how to love and worship God Directly. The first four commandments describe love and worship reserved for God alone. The the last six express how we love and worship God indirectly, meaning as we love our neighbors, we're ultimately loving God. The, the, The first table describes both internal and external love and worship. Number three, the second table. The last six commandments. Tell us how to love others, even our worst enemies. And that's very difficult for us. The second table explains how we love God indirectly or how we love him in and through our love for other people. And I want to make a very, very important point. Please don't miss this point. The first table of the law, the first four commandments are most important, most important. It is love for God that triggers love for others and it doesn't work the other way around. Have you seen, this may be pushing the limits in a church service, but have you seen a champagne tower Do you know what I'm talking about that? The champagne pyramid, you have a base of four by four uh, glasses and then on top three by three glasses and then on top two by two and then on top one champagne glass. You don't start by filling the glasses on the bottom row. The top glass wouldn't be filled in that case. You start at the top glass and as the top glass overflows... Then it fills all the other glasses beneath. The top glass is the first table of the law. It is important. It is most important. And as it is filled, the second table of the law is filled. And this is where many people today make a monumental mistake they ignore the first four commandments, toss them out. Not important while trying then to love people. And in doing so, they end up redefining love according to their own opinions, and they make a mess out of love. Saints, love for other people grows out of love for God. If love for God is not in your heart, your empty heart cannot love other people. It doesn't have the capacity to, at least in the way that pleases God. Your sinus was exactly right in saying, quote, the obedience of the first table is chief and supreme. The obedience of the second falls beneath that of the first and is depending upon it. Nay, it is only because we love God that we love our neighbor. Obedience to the first table is the cause of obedience to the second. Love to our neighbor grounds itself in love to God, but not contrary-wise, End quote. And folks, Jesus taught this. To a lawyer in Matthew 22, Jesus summarized the first table of the law by saying, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your uh, soul and with all of your mind. And, And that's the summary of the first table, the first four commandments. And then Jesus said this, this is the great and first commandment. In other words, It is the preeminent commandment. And then Jesus added, and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus put the two tables of the law in that specific order because loving God is preeminent. And when someone strives to love God, then they will also be striving to love their neighbor. Idolatry is the intent of innumerable iniquities. I was running the other day, as I like to do, haven't done it in a while, after the trip with Jeremiah to Baltimore and what we ate. I gotta run, folks. I gotta run if you're tracking with me. I see that head bobbing, yes. You're feeling my pain. But I was running and just south of the Twin Kiss in Mannheim is a big electric billboard. I've referenced this thing before and it flashes an advertisement. So superimposed on a rainbow flag was the phrase, love is love. Is that the right way to think about love? Does God think about love in that way? And, and I find it very interesting that the sign said love is love when scripture says God is love. Folks, when people ignore God and his law, they lose love. It's not love. Love is not defined by human opinion or the lusts of the flesh. It is defined by God and his law. It is the knowledge of God which leads us to true love. The gospel is the power to love. Whereas idolatry is the intent of innumerable iniquities. If the first table. If it is not preeminent for us, we will warp the second table. More to come on those things. Next, the preface itself. The preface. God's gracious self-revelation and deliverance. The preface. God's gracious self-revelation and deliverance. The preface, folks, is the gospel. The preface is God's gracious self-revelation and story of redemption. What God says in the preface uh, to the Ten Commandments, it, it tells us who God is, which is integral to understanding then what God commands. Now, my children, they know me. They know me really well. They, they know my love for them. They know that I want their best. So in theory, they should have an easier time believing my rules are good for them because they know me and my heart. That trust should be there theoretically, obedience should be easier and more joyful because they know their father and his love. Now, a toddler, they may kick and scream because you don't allow them to drink Drano. But as they mature, as they grow up a little bit, they come to understand and appreciate your prohibition. Amen? Okay, so we have to know which god is giving the moral law, or we will not understand the moral law. And we may end up thinking quite wrongly that God is some cosmic killjoy. The only way to be confident that the ten are best for us is, is to know the heart of the lawgiver. Do, do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying here? It's a simple point. Who is God? Number one, Abraham and paganism. Abraham was a pagan. In Joshua 24, verse 2, Joshua declares the word of God to the people and he says this, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Abraham was from a pagan family and Yahweh came to Abraham in his paganism and delivered him from it. And apart from anything that Abraham did, Yahweh entered into a gracious covenant with Abraham and with his children. God told Abraham things like, fear not, Abraham, I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And Abraham, interestingly, addressed God as, O Lord God, or O Lord Yahweh. And listen to what God said to Abraham in Genesis 15:7, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. That's gospel. That's gospel. Apart from anything Abraham had done, God delivered him and entered into covenant with him and his children. God even gave Abraham and his children a sign and seal of his covenant gospel promises to assure them. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Almighty God, Yahweh, the great covenant-making and covenant-keeping God who who graciously delivers his people from bondage to their sin and misery to possess them and to be their God forever. Yahweh is, as Deuteronomy 10.17 says, God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Yahweh is not like the ancient false gods of Mesopotamia and Greece and Rome. Yahweh is the great I Am. Yahweh powerfully and graciously delivered Abraham from his paganism. Number two, Israel and paganism. The people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years Imagine being immersed in pagan Egypt, Egyptian society and culture, all the while being oppressed by slavery, feeling the pressures of slavery, for 400 years. That's a spiritually dark place, people. So though Israel had the oral tradition of Yahweh... They were surrounded by polytheism and pantheism, and so syncretism or mixing religious beliefs would have been very, very easy for them to do. Dr. Douglas Stewart said this, having lived in the midst of pagan cultures all their lives, all Israelites were at risk for heterodox beliefs and or the distortion of whatever correct beliefs they may theoretically have inherited, end quote. Polytheism is to believe in and worship more than one God. Polytheism. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God. The universe is God. All that the universe contains is God. Reality is God. Humanity is God. And syncretism is combining different religious beliefs and practices. It's gobbledygook. And so Israel likely struggled with syncretism, with combining polytheism and pantheism with beliefs about Yahweh, the one true God. Dr. Stewart said, theirs was a polytheistic, pantheistic, and syncretistic world in which all people, groups, and nations, there are no known exceptions, believed that there were many gods, that all nature partook to some degree of divinity, and that all religions had at least some validity No matter how many or what sort of gods or goddesses those religions worshiped. While in Egypt, Israel was in bad spiritual shape. From the time of Jacob, Israel seemed to progressively lose knowledge of Yahweh of Yahweh's name and of Yahweh's gospel covenant promises. So when Yahweh delivered Israel from slavery, he also delivered them from a polytheistic, pantheistic, and syncretistic society and culture. The wilderness was leading them into purer worship of Yahweh, the one true God. How gracious of God to deliver them into the wilderness. Number three, God and sovereign grace. I want to go back for a moment to Yahweh revealing himself to Moses on Mount Horeb. From the burning bush, God called to Moses and said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses had grown up in a polytheistic and pagan family in Egypt. Yahweh was graciously revealing himself to Moses according to the covenant gospel promise made to Abraham. God graciously revealed himself to Moses so that Moses would go to Israel and lead them out of bondage. And Exodus 3 verse 13 goes like this, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? Now, think very carefully about that. Yahweh was a name already revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It seems as if Moses and Israel had forgotten their covenant God's name Before you ever understand the Ten Commandments, you need to know the God who gave them. It was I am who I am. It was the great I am, the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivered Israel from Egypt. Indeed, Yahweh himself who gave the Ten Commandments to his covenant people. Listen to the preface again. And God spoke all these words saying, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In the preface to the Ten Commandments, Yahweh is declaring his identity and his redeeming work His redemptive work, Israel had just been divinely delivered from Egypt, saw tremendous displays of God's terrifying glory and power on Sinai. They were rightly terrified. And then Yahweh self-identifies as Almighty God and reminds them of his impressive and gracious deliverance. God reveals three things. A, God reveals himself as Yahweh. Yahweh. That's his covenant identification. That's his name. Scholars take various angles on this, but I think I am, is God's comforting self-revelation of his self-existence, supremacy, and identity as the triune and almighty maker and sustainer of heaven and earth. It's also a reminder of his comforting presence with his people, Dr. Douglas Stewart stated, the name should thus be understood as referring to Yahweh's being the creator and sustainer of all that exists. And thus the Lord of both creation and history, all that is and all that is happening, a God active and present in historical affairs, end quote. And God's great name comforts his people. It identifies him as God of gods, Lord of lords, Almighty and unrivaled God. His, his identity dismantles polytheism. There is only one God. And Matthew Henry saw in I Am God's aseity or God's self-existence and self-sufficiency and independence of anything outside himself. So no other gods. Henry saw in I am God's eternal and unchangeable existence. Henry wrote, quote, do we ask what is God? Let it suffice us to know that he is what he is, what he ever was and ever will be. And Henry added that God is faithful and true to all his promises, unchangeable in his word as well as his nature. Herman Bavinck said that God is whatever he is by his own self or of his own self. And Zacharias, your sinus, connected the preface to God giving the Ten Commandments. Your Sinus said this, I, said he, whom you hearest speaking and announcing the law unto you, I am Jehovah, or we could say Yahweh, the true God who exists of and by himself, giving life and being to all things and having therefore supreme authority to govern and rule all things, the creator of all things, being eternal and almighty, the author and preserver of all good things, therefore you shall obey me. We confess this in the Apostles' Creed Therefore, we should obey this great one and only God. The identity of God commands obedience. Knowing the identity of God and his redemptive work convinces one of why obedience is necessary and good. It just will be like, why are we doing this if you don't know God? Knowing God and his redemptive work compels obedience. So one must know God and must know the gospel in order to understand the ten. And sometimes theological language can be so stiff and cold. But it's never stiff and cold. It's not it is most personal because God's self-revelation and name are most relevant to how we relate to him. We need to know theology if we're going to know this God. Right before God said, I am who I am, he told Moses what? I will be with you. John McKay said about I am It is not merely the existence of God that is to encourage Moses, but the fact of his active and committed presence to help his people. That is his character, and it is on that basis that they may have confidence for the present and the future. It is this response that is encapsulated in the covenant name, the Lord. That says a lot to you and me. Yahweh is with His people and He's holding them fast and strengthening them to live lives fitting of His children. We must know God in order to know the beauty and the goodness of His law. B, God reveals Himself as His people's God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. That's not generic, that's not universal, that's specific, and that's personal. God didn't say, I am Lord God, though that would have been entirely right in this context. He said, I am the Lord your God. God comforts and compels his people with, I am your God and you are my people. That's intimate. John McKay noted, quote, by this name, Yahweh or Lord, God personally identifies himself as the covenant king of Israel who has committed himself to fulfill his promises to them. If you know him, you can be confident in what he promises you. And then McKay explains how God's personal self-identification would have helped Israel. McKay said, Remembering this name will enable the Israelites to keep in mind the reality of what God is like and what he has undertaken to do. In this way, they will be able to move forward in faith and obedience, trusting the one they know. That's huge. Knowing what God is like. And knowing what God has undertaken to do in the lives of his people compels his people forward in faith and obedience. Knowing God fuels faith and obedience. Those who value the ten are those who know the power and the majesty and the grace and the mercy and the love of their God. Your sign said long ago, God is indeed the God of all creatures by creation, preservation, and government. But... He is the God of his church by the special manifestation and communication which he has made of himself. For he is properly the God of those whom he loves and delights in above all others. If you want to be a truly loving person, spouse, coworkers, I mean, if you really want to be a loving person, you must know God. You must know that Yahweh is your God. You must be confident that Yahweh has delivered you from your sins and misery, and you must be confident that Yahweh loves you and delights in you more than any other people's. Saints, Yahweh is your covenant God. Your covenant God, so receive the ten as your Father's instruction in how to love Love because you belong to Yahweh. See, God reveals himself as his people's deliverer. Yahweh delivers his people from bondage. Yahweh makes his people free to worship and serve him alone. Why does God demand obedience from his people? Why is he right to do so? Why does he do so? What's going on with that? And it's simple. Because God delivered his people from the Egypt of their sin and misery. That's why And they are happy about that. They're happy to be delivered and they're happy to be obedient. So they just want to glorify their deliverer and they have glad-hearted obedience. Their obedience is how they go about saying, I love you, my covenant God. love you. Notice that God says absolutely nothing about Israel's ability or goodness or worthiness or faithfulness. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. God's starting point is himself and his act of deliverance. God chose Israel. God pursued Israel. God went to Israel. God delivered Israel all despite the fact that Israel was syncretistic, unfaithful. The exodus typifies our redemption in Christ. God chose us. God pursued us. God came to us. God delivered us despite our infidelities. And until you understand that, the law will likely be for you a means that you struggle and strive and struggle and strive to earn the acceptance and love of God, and that is so unsettling and that is so exhausting. You can go to all the other world religions for that. The gospel is entirely different. God's sovereign and unconditional grace in election and salvation bestows true peace and comfort to the hearts of those he has delivered. When God said, who brought you out, he used, and don't be impressed by this, I really don't know Hebrew well at all, but he used the hifil Hebrew stem, which indicates the causative sense of verbs. Causation. For example, one source gave this illustration, Bob caused the car to crash. The direct object, car, participates in the action that the subject, Bob, caused. Israel participated in their liberation. They walked out of Egypt, absolutely, but God, the subject, caused their deliverance. This is God's sovereign and unmerited grace. This is the definitive cause. At the end of the day, there's nothing else to praise but God himself who chose us, who brought us, who delivered us out of slavery to our sin and misery. His grace alone compels us. You will not understand the 10 until that's in here Westminster Larger Catechism 101 says of the preface now to the Ten Commandments, which I believe is a statement of the gospel, with this, God makes known his sovereignty as being Yahweh, the eternal, unchangeable, and almighty God, having his existence in and of himself and giving existence to all his words and works and that he is a God in covenant, As with Israel of old, so with all his people who as he brought them out of their bondage in Egypt, so he delivered us from our spiritual bondage and that therefore we are bound to take him for our God alone and to keep all his commandments. Saints, you have to hear this. God says to you in the gospel, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the bondage of your sin and the devil. The gospel tells you and me, you have a glorious God and he is almighty God and he is awesome. Therefore, it is your greatest privilege and my greatest privilege to magnify his name by obeying him. If you don't understand the gospel in the preface of the Ten Commandments, you will not understand or do the Ten Commandments. Lastly, the purpose, the law for God's glory and our greatest good. This past week, I had the great privilege of taking my oldest son, Jeremiah, to Baltimore to enjoy a wonderful trip with him, a father-son trip, and we had a great time together. And one of the things that we did was we hit the Baltimore Aquarium, and inside the aquarium, we, they offer two 4D films, and they were really cool, and they were they were 3D films, uh, but they spritz water in your face, and they rumble your chair, and, and they throw like dead sharks and stuff at you. Yeah, I'm kidding, that, that doesn't happen, but that would be amazing. Um, <laughs> But anyway, they rumble your seat and all this, and you know how these movies go, like they're lurking sharks or something, and then one will like, and in the back of your seat, they put this thing that hits your back, that scares the, I mean, I was like, ah, one kid, I was telling some people earlier, one kid was like, ah, you know, in the middle of the theater, very scary, and every time it did it, it scared me. So I knew, okay, it could come, ah, and then I'm scared again, but... But, but part of the experience was wearing the 3D glasses. 3D glasses, and those glasses are key to the whole experience. If you watch the film without the glasses, it's blurry. It's just not impressive. It looks lame. I mean, we're used to like ultra hyper HD on our screen. So you, you don't have the glasses on. It looks dumb. And you're like, this is not. You, you can get the gist of what's happening, but you're not really. You're annoyed. All right. It's, you're just not enjoying the movie because the picture quality is so bad. But you put on those glasses, man, and whoosh, it just comes alive. It's amazing. Folks, without our gospel glasses on, the law will seem blurry. and and probably annoying, or worse, terrifying, or aggravating and enraging. But if we look at the law through the lenses of the gospel, we will see the magnificence and glory of our God's character and nature and being. We will see the beauty of Christ's righteousness and we will see the good life. I mean, what the good life really is. And, and good works, we'll see those that our Father has very graciously laid out for us to do. The way to see your greatest good in the law is to view the law through the gospel. Isn't that why God, in the preface to the Ten Commandments, reminded Israel of who he is and what he has done for them? Knowing your God and his powerful deliverance in your life is essential to you knowing the purpose of his law. Delight in his gospel so that you also delight in his law.